Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mackey Lozano. I'm very excited today because we have my dear friend Ann Garrido back on the podcast. Her and I are diving into the first chapter of Ways to Nurture the Relationship with God by Sophia Cavaletti and Patricia Culture. The first chapter is specifically on the birth and infancy of Jesus, which is perfect because this podcast episode is coming out right before Christmas. So I really encourage you, if you have not gotten your hands on this book, I really encourage you to get a copy. Maybe this is just the season that I'm personally in in my life at this time, but this is absolutely my favorite Catechesis of the Good Shepherd book right now. So I highly recommend it. And it this chapter specifically with this season that we are in is a beautiful way to dive into this Christmas season for the next few weeks and just really go on a deeper level of these infancy narrative stories, these stories surrounding Jesus's birth, these stories that we have heard over and over and over throughout our life that sometimes we can kind of feel that they've become mundane and kind of tune them out because, oh, I know that story. This chapter will add depth to these stories in a way that will allow you to experience them on a whole new level. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome back to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Carrie, I'm delighted to be back with you. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about all who Anne Garrido is. Tell us about you. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so I'm Anne Garrido. I am an associate professor of homiletics at Aquinas Institute of Theology. So I have a deep love of scripture we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And then I also have been a catechist with the Good Shepherd now for over 25 years. Um, and That's I'm, amazing. I can't believe how much time has gone by. And then I, uh, I'm currently serving as a level one catechist at um, the parish that I've just recently moved to in Atlanta. Oh, you're in Atlanta now? I didn't realize you're in Atlanta. I am. Yeah. So I'm doing the bilocation thing between St. Louis and Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> you have mastered bilocation. You're amazing. <laughs> And you're also an author. I'm sitting here looking. I have a couple of your books right here in front of me. I have Redeeming Conflict in a Year with Sophia Cavalletti, and those aren't even all of your books. Yeah, but the one that I should probably mention that I'm most excited that's coming out in February is um, on preaching with children. So kind of a combination Ooh. of two great passions of mine, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd and the field of, of homiletics or preaching. That's neat. And it's called Preaching with Children? Yeah, yeah. it'll be coming out that's very shortly. Oh, I definitely want to get my hands on that book. And then you have Mustard Seed Preaching, which is for adults. It is. And in fact, Mustard Seed Preaching is is uh, out of publication now. It's been out for 20 years. And so Preaching with Children will be replacing that one. Nice. Yeah. That's exciting. That's well, you have definitely kept yourself busy this whole past year. <laughs> and And you were also my formation leader for Level 3. I was. It's a treasure in my heart still that I ponder to this day. (laughs) Every day I think of you. (laughs) Okay, so today it is right before Christmas. And so we are going to dive into that first chapter of Ways to Nurture the Relationship with God because it specifically talks about the birth and infancy of Jesus. And I would love it if you and I could dive into this chapter 
in regards to the depth that's in the scripture of the infancy narratives, the stories that surround Jesus's birth and infancy. Yes, this is an incredibly rich chapter that Sophia wrote. And because the texts themselves are so rich, as you're indicating. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about this book, Ways to Nurture the Relationship with God. How did it get into our hands? Um, Well, Patricia Coulter, who's a catechist from uh, the Toronto area, is one of the first people from North America who went over and studied with Sophia, spent some time in Rome sitting at her feet and listening to her um, uh, definitely present with the children, but then also to give background lectures in which she was sharing you know, some of her own scholarship that she'd done around scripture. Mm -hmm. And uh, Patricia, I I, I suspect that some of these were probably based on Sophia's background lectures that she offered to catechists over in Rome. And so uh, Patricia has been amazing at translating things into English from Italian that have not been translated before for us so that we can have some of these pearls uh, from Sophia. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I heard, too, was that these chapters are almost the notes from people's background lectures that she gave in those very early formation courses that Sophia gave. Yeah. Those who were formed at the very beginning are like, oh, these look just like my notes. (laughs) Well, and I remember at one point in time, I think it was uh, Claudia Schmitz, the catechist, Uh, in Mm -hmm. Arizona area she said to Sophia she said how much time do you spend with with the Bible to prepare and and Sophia said about about four hours and and Claudia said you know I thought she meant like like four hours a week or four hours a month and and Sophia said no four hours a day and that so her depth of knowledge around scripture was so deep (laughs) she just like this was something that really her whole life was spent marinating in the text so she had lots to offer catechists um, who were open to hearing. Yeah. I heard once that if Sophia had not been invited into the work with the children, that she would have just been in a library her whole life because she was just such a scholar. Yeah. She describes herself as a library mouse and the children, uh, the children uh, saved her from that fate. (laughs) 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 But yeah, her, her heart was in deep study. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, I'm really grateful for the children that pulled her out of the library. But I can imagine being one of the children sitting next to Sophia while she's describing like one of these infants in here with like the birth of Jesus and just being captivated by her interest in it, by her depth of knowledge. But just how like intrigued she was by it probably drew them in as well. Yes, because Sophia herself said that these infancy narratives were the hardest text to share with children. And the reason mm. why was because children think that they're like, they think they know them already. And all of us yeah. in modern society, we think we know these texts. And really what we just have is a, like a conglomeration, like a story that we've put together all these different yeah. things into one picture. But you can imagine what Sophia was calling the children to and what she calls us to in the reading is to go deeply into each one and um, discover the theology that's embedded inside of them. It, okay, so let's do that. Let's kind of tap into that just a little bit. We do not have enough time in this one episode to do it all. So let's kind of tap on a few. Could you speak into the background of the Gospels, specifically the infancy narratives, but the the Gospels in general as well? Mm-hmm. So we know that in the in the Bible, as we have it, there are four Gospels, right? 
And these four mm-hmm. gospels, each written from a slightly different voice, all presenting different um, pictures of Jesus. Because it was, it's kind of like, as we say, you're like, why did he give us so many different names? Good shepherd, true vine. Well, because the mystery of Christ is so great that one, one image alone couldn't capture it. And we could say, also say, the mystery of Christ was so great that one gospel alone couldn't hold the fullness. And so we have four different voices that echo that we hold as um, what we would say is canonical, or we hold as, as true to the person of Jesus. And the only two of the Gospels that include stories of his youth and infancy are Matthew and Luke. So Mark's Gospel, probably the first of the Gospels to be written, about the year 70, it, ju- it begins with, with Jesus's... Um, adult ministry. Um, John's gospel, interestingly, starts from the beginning of time, if you want to say, like in the beginning Mm -hmm, was the word. mm -hmm. But Matthew and Luke are the two evangelists who include something about Jesus's infancy. And when when we say infancy narratives, we're just meaning those early stories, the text of anything from all the way up to when Jesus is baptized and his ministry begins. And we know that actually Luke and Matthew, they were both writing probably around 85 to 90 years after Jesus' birth. And they were writing for some quite different audiences with quite different purposes in mind. So mm-hmm. Luke was probably not Jewish himself, and he was writing for a non-Jewish audience, an audience that would have um, probably their very first language would have been Greek. And it's interesting, like the way that he even includes some of these infancy narratives he writes them in a style that's, that's kind of similar to other ways in which um, Greek literature appears at that time, which is this sense that in a person's childhood, what you're going to discover is clues about uh, who they would really be in their life. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of that idea, almost like in, in CGS, when we say everything that's, that's in the rose is already in the bud. Similarly, like, the stories of a child's life are kind of like the stories of a personhood and its bud and everything that's essential is going to be there. And then over time it opens and it widens. But if you can understand the, the nub of that story, you're going to get all the clues you need for understanding what Jesus was all about. Um, Matthew also very similar in that what he's writing these infancy narrative stories is to give us clues so that we will be able to understand the plot line of the gospel. Matthew probably was writing for a Jewish community. And so Matthew's quite different in many ways from Luke. He's going to, for example, his community would have known the prophets of Israel. Mm-hmm. So his, his whole structure of the way that he writes the infancy narrative relies a lot on the, the Jewish imagination of his listeners. And we'll draw on that much more than, than Luke does per se. So, the two Gospels uh, include very different stories between them, and there's not actually a whole lot of overlap between them. Mm-hmm. But every single one of the episodes in there is like a, a gem to be treasured on its own. Mm-hmm. You can isolate each one and discover something different about who Jesus is. That is definitely for sure. And I find it so fascinating. Sophia says in Ways to Nurture the Relationship with God on page two, she says that the infancy narratives were written at the end of the gospel accounts rather than at the beginning. And I find that so fascinating because 
you don't, that's not how we read, you know, like we think of reading the Bible as, as, as if it's a history book and that it was written in chronological order in such a way. But this is so fascinating because it's like, you know, you think about a story in your own life and you look back at having happened and you now can see the hand of God in it, or now you can see the good and the bad, you know, because hindsight's twenty twenty, And that's what's happening by writing it last. You see that they are in the full context, she says, the reflection on the believing the Christian community in light of Jesus's whole life, his birth, his death and resurrection. So looking at the stories surrounding Jesus's birth in the light of his death and resurrection. So like looking back and saying, seeing little nuggets from Jesus's birth that point to who he is and point to his future death and resurrection. It's like a whole nother way to read them. And, you know, one of the ways, which I don't know if this is a good parallel or not, but sometimes I think, you know, even as, as parents, to think of it in this way, as parents, when we tell the story of our children, like my, my son now is in his mid-20s, right? And so he's a, he's a grown-up. And what, as a mom, what I remember about his childhood now almost always is told in light of who he is. So my son mm. has, is a musician, right? And so what I remember about his childhood and the stories that, you know, remembering evokes for me um, of him is I remember when he was really little and we have these videos of him singing directly into a videotape. And I remember mm -hmm. before he was born, we were, my husband and I were kind of nervous about becoming parents. And I remember that Mike had a, my husband had a dream in which he said, I saw this little boy who had an angelic voice singing, mm -hmm. you know? And so what happens is we impart, there's probably lots and lots of other things that happened in my son's early life, but I remember those things about him because it reflects that in his childhood, there was already the seed of who he became. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for myself, my mom would tell stories about like, oh, I remember when you were little and you built a monastery out of shoeboxes and you had little clay <laughs> figures. Well, yeah, because now as a catechist, the good shepherd, I'm still building things out of shoeboxes and little clay figures, right? But if I had become like a, I don't know, master thief, she would have remembered, oh, I remember when Anne tried to, you know, shoplift that coloring book at the age of four, which also is true. But, you know, she doesn't remember that because we tell stories in light of who the person became. Hmm. And so also mm -hmm. in light of the early Christian community's experience of Jesus, when they look back, certain things pop out and they remember um, mm -hmm. and they tell the story in light of who that person is. Mm -hmm. And so I love that. I think it's so beautiful. I think it, it makes this infancy narratives, these stories so much more rich because it's, it has all of the little hidden gems of who Jesus is. Like if you were to read them with just that question in mind, what does this story tell us about who Jesus is? And that's so, because remember we said that's the key question for children. Like that's one of the big things when they enter into the atrium, what are they asking? Who really are you, Lord? Mm -hmm. And who am I in light of that? Mm -hmm. Which is one of the reasons why, from Sophia from the very beginning, is like, these are the stories we need to present to children because they give us the essence of who he is. Mm -hmm. And if we can penetrate the clues that are in these stories, we will understand the core mystery of who Christ mm -hmm. is. Well, let's dive into a couple of the stories that Sophia lifts up and that we do in the atrium and kind of ask ourselves that question. What is it telling us 
about who Jesus is in this story. And another thing that Sophia always points out, and especially in this book, and you touched on it just a little bit ago, are those connecting points, especially for the Jewish audience, of when I say, when I, what what does Matthew say? He says, He's always pointing to son of David mm-hmm. or um, the prophets, as the prophet said, the book of genealogy. He says these things because his Jewish audience know these words and they know that they mean Messiah. Mm. And so like reading, Sophia does such a beautiful job in this chapter and throughout this whole book of finding those nuggets and pointing them out to us who are not accustomed to reading in these ways and saying, see, when he says these words, he's telling them this means something. This means Messiah. This means, um, you know, he's connecting him to Abraham. He's connecting him to Moses or whatever it is. I love the way she points out those nuggets that have deeper meaning for the Jewish audience who they were written for, but us today are not as accustomed to looking at it in that way. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when you look at Matthew's story, Matthew's genealogy, um, that he begins with, he starts with the person of Abraham, right? The, mm-hmm. the father and faith of the Jewish people and um, traces all the way through so that when uh, Jesus is born, it's, it's really is through Joseph that he enters into the Davidic line. Um, and that Matthew then, basically he has five infancy narratives that he includes, which mirrors this idea that there's five books of the Torah and then Matthew's whole gospel is structured in pieces of five. So again, like it's saying, it's so subtle underneath there, but it's this hidden connection to the Jewish tradition mm-hmm. that he's deeply reading, rooting Jesus within the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish people who were reading his gospel, who were his target audience, they would have picked that up mm-hmm. immediately. They were accustomed to seeing, okay, five, that means this, that means Torah. Yeah. And each of these five episodes in Matthew is each centered around one prophecy that Matthew connects it in with. So it's like it's making this connection that Jesus is the fulfillment of what you have hoped for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also does such a beautiful job of connecting little and small. Yeah. Like this great grandeur of the Son of God with all these everyday common items and common events that are happening, even just the birth itself. So which, you know, there's a baby born every day, there's a baby born constantly. This is in, in some ways, you could see of it as an everyday common experience. But in some ways, this specific baby also has this grandeur, this beautiful greatness about it, because it's the Messiah, it is the Son of God. Well, and that it's that King's come or magi come from the east Mm -hmm. um, that even the stars Mm -hmm. of heaven acknowledge that something new on the new new has happened on earth Um, so again it's the tiny baby with the the grandeur of the heavens and all of royalty who are there and Matthew's one of the ones then Matthew the story of the magi belongs explicitly to Matthew Um, but the magi come bearing these gifts which is like an echo all the way back to uh, the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 60, when he says, you know, that kings shall c- come by your light, bringing gold and frankincense. And so it's mm-hmm. this um, sense that uh, this royalty of, of this little tiny baby, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the priestliness of this little tiny baby. And then also a clue, again, 
by adding myrrh into it, like the prophetic nature of this little tiny baby. So again, giving us clues as to who this child really is. And the Magi story for me, and I'm so grateful for this work of catechesis because I didn't think about these stories until then. Like you said before, for me, they were just stories. They were, you know, stories you've heard a million times throughout your life. They were all clumped together in something you hear at Christmas time. But this work with the children have allowed me time to isolate and ponder each of these stories. And this story of the Magi, I particularly love because it pulls in like the star. Mm. This idea that nature itself has an ability to speak of the grandeur of God, has yeah. a, ha, is pronouncing the birth of Jesus as well, even nature. Yeah, and that God reaches people through many means. So the Jewish people, for mm-hmm. example, they had the prophet's words to listen to and to guide by their life. But there are other people beyond Israel who also had this sense of waiting and watching and a sense of expectation that God is about to do something great and that the way that they are perceiving the voice of God is through so carefully watching the signs of nature. And that when the mm-hmm. star appears that to them, that's an indication of God's activity on earth. And it's interesting in that magic story, because they follow that star and the star, like they first, they go to Jerusalem because there again, mm-hmm. is your exact thing about greatness and smallness. Like where would they first expect the King to show up? If you're going to expect the King, well, it's in Israel, it's going to be Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, not this little tiny town. <laughs> and so they go to Jerusalem, and they meet the king there, and they're like, okay, so where is this newborn king of the Jews? Um, and it's like their, their, their star has led them so far. It can take them to Jerusalem, but it's, they still need, it's there that they encounter the words of the prophet to find the last five miles that it takes to get to Bethlehem. When they arrive in Bethlehem, it's that mighty and the small, again, that you were pulling up earlier. You would think that a king would be born in Jerusalem, but it's in this little tiny town of Bethlehem mm-hmm. is where the king actually is is to be found. Well, and what you're saying it, it, earlier about like the, uh, you had always entered in and I just, I read these, you know, and I, they were all one big conglomeration. It reminds me of a line from Gregory the Great, the church father. And he says that scripture is like a river broad and deep. It's shallow enough for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough for the elephant to swim. And it's like, so we can enter into them at whatever phase we are in life. We can enter in and just at, at the beginning and just learn the characters and who they are. And, but then we, mm-hmm. there's always going to be these spaces to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And we're never going to exhaust them. Which speaks into why we hear these stories over and over and over again, because they will speak something different to us depending on what's going on in our life or how open we are to hearing the depths of it or et cetera, et cetera. And the Magi, that's what they were doing, right? Like they had their signs and it could take them a certain level and then it kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper until it puts them Mm -hmm. at the feet of the child. Mm -hmm. And then the Magi themselves, the fact that they were not Jewish, and we lift this up with the children as well of what does that mean about who Jesus came for? Who did this baby come for? If these these magi from the East, these non-Jewish yeah. people who have come. Yeah. What does because, that say about who Jesus is? Well, we were just talking about how Matthew's gospel was primarily written for a Jewish community, mm-hmm. but that what he was proclaiming was that Jesus is, the coming of Jesus had import 
for all people, um, not just mm-hmm. his own people, but that his voice, kind of when we ask that question in the atrium, I wonder how far his voice reaches. That it reach, does it reach all the way to Persia, to Arabia, to beyond? Like, so how far does mm-hmm. his voice reach? And what we're really marking in that story is that his voice and his impact is far beyond his own town. I wonder how his Jewish audience received that message. I wonder if they received it well. Well, it's something that throughout Jesus' adulthood, again, if you think of them as these infancy narratives as mirrors of what we're going to discover in his adult ministry, it very much parallels, for example, in Jesus' adult ministry when, I don't remember when he meets the Syrophoenician woman. And at first he's like, well, I'm just here for the lost sheep of Israel. And then the woman says, but, you know, even the dogs get to eat scraps from the table. And Jesus at that moment begins to imagine like, Oh, like maybe Jesus himself had in a, in a moment where he began mm-hmm. to realize he was called to more than just his own. So I think that there's there's um this mirroring. I think that in his adulthood too, it's this question of who really is Jesus called for, and that that was called you know what is well, who is his ministry for, and that uh, in the course of Jesus's ministry, it also expands to begin to include people beyond those maybe that had been imagined at the time. Mm-hmm. Which to me shows another example of that hindsight that we've talked about before. Like when this gospel was written, the author already knew that Jesus had come for beyond just his audience of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And so that recalling that story of the Magi had a whole different meaning when you're looking at it in hindsight. And, you know, it's interesting because Luke makes a very similar point in his infancy narrative, but goes into it from another door. So when Luke, when Luke's genealogy is given, he doesn't begin with Abraham. Luke's genealogy begins with Adam as a way of saying, Mm -hmm. like, all of humanity is in this story. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Luke doesn't have the story of the Magi, but Luke makes a really similar point um, in the way that he tells the story of Jesus as coming into the world. Mm-hmm. The way that Matthew is written for the Jewish people, and he uses those specific terms that the Jewish people would recognize and be able to say, oh, okay, so you're saying he's the Messiah. Well, how, what does Luke do for the Gentiles? What is he doing for the non-Jewish people to point out who Jesus is? How is he doing that? Mm. You know, he, Luke makes, like we're saying, very similar points in just slightly different ways. And so this idea of greatness and smallness that you mentioned before, mm-hmm. that is so very present in Luke as well. Um, with Luke, one of the ways it shows up is in the two stories of Annunciation that are in Luke. So for Luke, you know, there's an Annunciation to Zechariah, a priest of the mm-hmm. temple, that, that John the Baptist will be born. It happens in a temple. It happens to a priestly family. Whereas, uh, and, and Zechariah is kind of like given the, this name that he's going to name his son. In the coming of Jesus, again, who is this child that the son of God, but given this message given to a woman, not in Jerusalem, but in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth is such a tiny town. I think archaeologists now think that probably there were about 90 people in the whole town. I mean, Mary was probably related to everybody there. Mm -hmm. Little tiny place, right? Mm -hmm. But that this is the place where the announcement is made of the son of God. And that Mary, a woman, is told that you will give him this name. So 
again, is this greatness and smallness that can just be found in these, these contrasts with these two stories. Mm-hmm. And again, born in a manger, a feeding trough in the place mm-hmm. of food, but whose birth is hailed by angels, right? Singing songs mm-hmm. of Gloria and Excelsis Deo. Again, this greatness and this smallness thing is also so present in Luke as well. Mm-hmm. And the sense that he comes for all. Right. And you see that again in Luke with the shepherds and that they're these outcast, dirty shepherds that these grandeur of angels who have come to, but they are the ones that have been proclaimed to first. And mm-hmm. they are the ones that come to visit Jesus first. Yeah. You know, I can just imagine that his audience specifically felt pulled or drawed or included um, when they hear that. Yeah. The birth of Jesus from that perspective, that the shepherds were included. And probably on, on two different fronts. Again, it's a clue that Jesus in his adulthood that his primary audience, who was going to be drawn to him, would primarily be the outcasts, right? Those who are on the mm-hmm. margins of society would be mm-hmm. the people who Jesus saw that he had come for. Um, and then possibly also this image of the shepherd, as we know, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, also has the shepherd is often an image of a leader, right? One who gathers his flock. And so it also has this allusion to like the idea of the good shepherd, right? And that we think of Moses being a shepherd and Jacob being a shepherd and David being a shepherd, and that Jesus stands in that lineage of the next shepherd of the people Israel. So Anne, could you speak into why are these stories important for us to lift up with the children? I think, I think because children are so essential, and the younger the child, the more essential, um, that they help to speak to that child's core question, as we said earlier, who really are you, Lord? And so we know with the littlest children, maybe also because they themselves are small, they resonate with an image of Jesus as small, mm-hmm. like there's this special yeah. relationship that happens there. But it helps that it's a doorway for entering to the mystery of who Jesus is. And so with the littlest ones, we know that the stories that they've come back to over and over again and told us are really important for them are the story of the Annunciation to Mary, the visitation of Mary to Elizabeth, um, the the nativity of Jesus and the adoration of the shepherds, uh, the adoration of the Magi, and then the presentation in the temple when Jesus's parents bring him uh, to the temple and they meet Anna and Simeon. And we know from the earliest years, those really resonate with children and they love going back and moving the figurines for those over and over and hearing the story and, and just listening to the, the beautiful language, the names of Jesus that are given there, each one a, mm-hmm. a clue to who he is. Son of the Most mm-hmm. High, right? Um, Messiah, Lord. Son of God. We know as the children begin, as that rose of, begins to open, that the level two children, they love to receive a little bit more historical cultural detail. <laughs> so some of the stuff we've been talking about, like, well, what was the role of shepherds in, you know, in Jesus's time? And what is a manger and um, these kinds of things. And they also begin to love them the story of the um, flight into Egypt. Because it's that that sense of like, oh, that Joseph was listening so carefully and following God's plan, and God was protecting his son, even in times of great, great danger. 
Mm-hmm. The level three children, the nine to 12 year olds, this is when in the atrium, they're beginning to be exposed to the Old Testament more, that they begin to catch all of these allusions to Jewish history that you and I have begun to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And that begins to get really fascinating as we see these links that the evangelists themselves, they're trying to point backward to a history that their own hearers would have understood. And by the time our children are nine to 12, they can begin to catch those links too. And we can go, we can do all the same infancy narratives that we've done before, and maybe even go a little deeper with that flight into Egypt. And what does that mean? And then also to add there the the final infancy narrative of the finding of Jesus in the temple when he was 12. And you can imagine for children who are in that age of just on the edge of adolescence, that story has a particular resonance to them at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And all to answer the question, who are you, Jesus? Yes. And by then also, and who am I? Mm. Because all the way through the infancy narratives, what we get is this sense of that God is that Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that God has ever sent. And we are called to open and enjoy that gift. But then when you receive a gift, there begins to be that sense of like, and how do I respond out of my joy? And so throughout the infancy narratives, we're getting models of response. Mary's deep listening and pondering in her heart. Joseph's ear that is so attentive to the voice of the angel that says, take Mary as your wife or flee for your child's life and, and follows immediately. Or the shepherds who, who come or the, the kings who to make this great long journey. Anna and Simeon in the temple and how they proclaim the good news of the gift. All the way through, we're getting these models of how do you respond to the gift of Christ in your life so that as the child begins to reach closer and closer toward that age of 12, it's like, and what shall I do in my life in response? Mm -hmm. And how shall my life be a gift in response to the God who has given so much? Mm. What's my vocation? And that's really where that finding in the temple, that's the big question. And what is, what is? How, how at that age do we see seeds of Jesus's call in life at the age of 12? Now that I approach that age, do I see seeds of who I shall become in my next phase mm-hmm. of life as well? Mm-hmm. Man, and then just like everything that we do in the atrium, I feel like I could sit down with just one of these stories and ask myself those two big questions of, okay, now that I've read the Annunciation, what is resonating with me about who Jesus is? And then... What shall my response be in these moments as well? What a beautiful way to prepare for Christmas. Mm. And I just, I, I think the chapter that you mentioned from Sophia's writing, From Ways to Nurture Relationship with God, is a great meditation for going in. It really is, yeah. Yeah. It really is. It definitely t- makes those string of stories that we've all become used to have layers of depth to them. Layers of depth. You could even just read parts of this chapter and be able to just sit with it, like maybe the Annunciation, and find the the part in this chapter that specifically lifts up the Annunciation and just reflect on that, and then go back and read the scripture on the Annunciation a few times, and let that be your preparation for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beautiful. Well, Anne, is there anything else that you would like to lift up? Oh, Carrie, I wish you a most marvelous Christmas season. Um, May it be filled with the mystery of the great and the small in your own household. 
Mm. Thank you. You too, Anne. Thank you for sharing your beautiful wisdom with us as always. Carrie, thanks for inviting me to talk again. It's good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you too. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. If you have children in your life and you are wanting to dive into one of the infancy narratives, these stories around Jesus's birth with them, I would encourage you to pick one of the stories to just sit with them with and to dive into those two questions that Anne and I lifted up of what does this story tell us about who Jesus is? And then what is our response to this story? How can we respond the way Mary responded or the way Joseph responded? How can now we respond to this gift of this story that we just read? I think it's very human of us to want to read all the stories because we want to give our children everything that is good. And these stories are very good. But pick one at a time. Just pick one to sit with and allow it to penetrate your heart. Sit next to your child and allow it to penetrate your heart as well as your child. I have a bunch of links in the show notes for other books that you might be interested in reading to dive more into the infancy narratives and the depth that is behind these scripture stories. Of course, there is ways to nurture the relationship with God, but we also have the history of the kingdom of God that you would want to dive into as well, and a few other resources that I'm going to link as well. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I would like to thank all the contributing members because you are making this podcast possible. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd or to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening this week. Have a wonderful Merry Christmas. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.